Welcome to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. Hi, this is McKnight's Long-Term Care News Senior Editor, Kim Marcellus. I'm joined today by Adam Getzo, an attorney with Hinshaw and Culbertson, who is leading an expansion of the firm's healthcare practice to bring more focus to aging services. Adam's going to share some of his thoughts on mounting regulatory and legal pressures in the skilled nursing sector. Welcome, Adam. And why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and the new role you have? Thanks so much. And uh, we really appreciate McKnight's inviting us to come speak today. In terms of my new role, as of a few weeks ago, I am now co-leading our firm's national healthcare practice. Hinshaw has always had a very strong healthcare practice that runs the spectrum of true traditional litigation, medical litigation, all the way to corporate transactions. We're focused throughout the country, coast to coast. I myself am located in Chicago. And the healthcare focus of our firm has always been general, as I said, but as the regulatory changes and litigation changes continue to accrue in the long-term care and what I call aging services setting, firm has made a proactive step to further expand our role in this industry. I myself have been a long-term care attorney my entire career, spanning over 15 years. I exclusively practice in this space, and my representation is a pretty good mix between traditional litigation in state and federal court, as well as regulatory actions, including licensing enforcement concerns before both departments of public health, as well as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. In terms of how we see this space expanding, I think everyone sort of knows, and we believe, this is the new generation of healthcare with baby boomers aging into the need of these services. We see a exponential growth in this space, and we're really excited to be part of that growth. Well, great. Thanks for your perspective, and certainly you bring years of expertise here. So let's start the conversation with a forecast of sorts, uh, you know, looking at the changes that we've seen in recent months, some of those we know are coming. What do you see as the top two or three legal and regulatory issues providers will be facing for the rest of 2023? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's definitely a hard question because I think there's a pretty good amount of issues that providers are currently facing and continue to face throughout the remainder of the calendar year. First and foremost, from a regulatory standpoint, which again is a large portion of what I do and particularly licensing enforcement issues, I really think that dealing with the realities of perpetually understaffed regulatory agencies is going to be an ongoing concern for our operators. What do I mean by this? I'm sure any operator or any individuals working sort of at the ground level in the facilities and in the buildings are aware your state surveying bodies, your departments of public health are pretty understaffed right now. And that means that you're seeing lengthier return times on revisits. You're perhaps seeing some issues in getting timely 2567s following investigations, either complaint or licensure issues. And I think that operators need to front that. We all know that while the state regulatory agencies are our partners and their ultimate goal is to ensure success for the operation of our buildings, sometimes that relationship could be a little more terse than we hope between the operator and the state regulatory agencies. So we need to confront the issues that they're dealing with and make sure that we're protecting ourselves. Just a few sort of tips that I would add for making sure that you are confronting those as proactively as you can. 
acknowledge that revisits following a complaint or licensure survey are going to take longer than they maybe took in the past. And what does that mean? It means that be very mindful of any sort of discretionary denial payments that may be imposed on you from an initial statement of deficiency. Be aware that you may have to appeal some DPNAs where maybe you did not have to appeal before because the revisit occurred timely and it was never really an issue. I am seeing more DPNAs going into effect. And I think some of that is tied to this understaffing. Understaffing, I should say, I don't know if they're truly understaffed or overworked, or I'm not really sure what it is, but sort of these lengthier times we're seeing on the state agency sides. And I know they're working as best as they can within the limitations that they have. But front it, calendar the DPNA date when it's supposed to go into effect. Calendar your appeal deadline for DPNAs when they're supposed to go into effect. I know operators haven't always done that. I think that it is a, a good opportunity to sort of revisit that practice right now, being confronted with the reality of sort of this understaffed, overworked, whatever you want to call it, issue and sort of employment pandemic amongst these regulatory bodies. And I would imagine that's an issue that's going to persist, you know, if we're having a challenge hiring nurses and that's who the survey agencies need to hire as well. You know, they're not going to recover necessarily any more quickly than skilled nursing facilities. So what other big issues do you throw into that two or three? The other big issue, I will say, and particularly that I'm seeing, I sit in Illinois. So in the Illinois courts, specifically from a legal standpoint, I'm seeing sort of a revisit to an investigating of the arbitration issue. We all remember 2018, 2019, when arbitration agreements from CMS were sort of in a state of flux. We remember this stay from, if you guys recall, from the Southern District, I believe in Mississippi, from the American Health Lawyer Association. And then we now know what the final rule is related to arbitration agreements. So while I think we all sort of had a deep sigh of relief when that final rule came out and we saw how arbitration agreements were to be implemented in accordance with CMS regulations, the pendulum has sort of swung back a little bit in, in my experience, particularly in Illinois, where we have courts now sort of looking at these and determining from their own opinion whether or not these are valid, whether or not these are enforceable. What I find most concerning about that is I have really yet to see a court opinion that actually references what CMS says is allowed. They go on a true contractual standpoint and they sort of ignore, well, CMS, which is our regulatory body for those that receive, of course, federal funds, uh, says we can do this. So why are we now being told we cannot? So I I'm definitely seeing some states taking a second look at the use of arbitration agreements. And I think that providers need to be aware of what those, it's a state of flux, again, as we saw in 2018, 2019, we need to see what states want us to do. And I am a very big proponent of arbitration agreements, particularly in the skilled nursing realm, for many reasons. But I do think that keeping yourself abreast of recent case law, the CMS regulations are sort of set in stone at this point, at least for now, but keeping yourself abreast of state interpretations and state case law regarding the issue will help make sure that your individuals all the way down to your direct admission staff are doing what the states want to see you doing to make sure that those agreements are later enforceable in court. All right. If it's okay with you, I'm going to shift over to the big elephant in the room that you didn't mention yet, the staffing minimum. As we discussed offline earlier, 
this could literally drop any moment. At this point, many people consider it late. So none of us knows what the mandate will look like, what that actual minimum will be. Can you talk a little bit about your concerns, but also as to when it hits, what are going to be some of the key things providers will need to do to prepare to be in compliance, especially from a data or legal perspective? Yeah, of course. And that's, that is the elephant in the room. And, you know, we joked offline a little bit that we look every day to see if this is coming down from CMS. And I looked right before I joined today to make sure nothing's come up. And it took me back to a moment of when we were all dealing with the realities of the pandemic and the ever-changing regulations, that every day before you jumped on a call with a client or every day before you jumped on a presentation, you had to look to make sure those regulations did not change because they were ever-changing. And I find myself doing this now with a minimum staffing issue with CMS. Every day I'm looking to see if it's come down. As you referenced before, we were anticipating some sort of enforcement memorandum coming down in spring of this year. At least where I sit, it's summer now, and I think that's for most people. So spring has come and gone. I think that everyone was really nervous come April to see if this was going to come down. It did not. I mean, CMS issued, of course, some other things in April, and we were expecting to see a little more guidance on this, and it didn't. It didn't come down. I think that we're probably realizing that CMS is still digesting their feasibility studies, what those results were, the comment periods. I also think that they're likely looking to states that have this issue, Illinois being one of them. And I would be sort of remiss to not point out that the last data that I saw on this issue is that if a proposed minimum was four point hours of nursing care per resident, it would cost operators $11.3 billion annually and would require 191,000 nursing personnel to meet the requirements. Here's my question, which is the question of every operator. A, where's the money coming from? And B, where's the nursing staffing coming from? We talked about this a few moments ago in relation to the state agencies themselves having likely struggles finding clinicians and nursing personnel to staff their own agencies. Where are these individuals coming from? I imagine CMS is looking to the states that have similar minimum staffing issues that came out recently to see what's going on with those. What's the reality there? Are agencies able to enforce these? Are operators able to comply? In terms of compliance, and I am in a state where this did come down, the minimum staffing, and from a state perspective, and we're in the middle of it right now. And what's my best recommendation to ensure that you do have the ability to comply to the best of your ability once this does hit? It's getting your best practices in place for reporting, making sure your PBJ data is Mm -hmm. is accurate, your census reporting is online. And I will tell you, when I, I see clients of mine, especially in Illinois, when we were looking at the minimum staffing issue, when it first came down, I would see Illinois would put out with their violations, they would put out what your census reporting was, what your PBJ was. And I had several clients across the board, census reporting was zero. So it's not that their census was not zero, of course, but they weren't reporting it because they weren't used to it being such a large issue. So just remember, get those best practices in place now so you're not running around when this does come down and instead you can focus on, okay, what do I have to do to get these people in the door to work. And that's where your focus really should be is maintaining those numbers for staffing 
and not so much on best practices to report. Get those best practices in place right now concerning reporting. Okay, great tips. So let's stay with some of the efforts you've been involved uh, in, in Illinois. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how providers seem to have a little more input in some states these days? And obviously I think you're gonna say yes, but is that a welcome change? It's definitely a welcome change. And I think that state agencies have really worked hard to, as I said before, the relationship between state agencies and skilled nursing providers is always intended to be cooperative. It's not intended to be necessarily adversarial by nature. I think we do see that adversarial component at times, and you're always going to. They are the regulatory enforcement body for your entity. But I have seen a more serious look into building that cooperation. And that involves opening the door to conversations with operators and listening and saying from, you know, from the operator standpoint, we can't make this work right now. We need more time. These are the issues that we're realizing that are going to be very difficult to implement. And I will tell you right now, from a staffing standpoint in Illinois, we're still in an implementation period. And that is what I would call a grace that the state has provided to operators to work themselves to get to the point where compliance is possible. I don't think that operators, and including, I'm not an operator, but I'm, I'm definitely in the space and see and deal with operators. I don't think we're ever going to agree that these staffing minimums are fair. And, you know, I don't like using the term fair. I think these are, are very lofty goals for the state and federal government. And all we can do is the best we can do. So I think there's always going to be some adversity there that this, these are a little lofty is the best terms that I can describe. We're already dealing with enough from an operating standpoint. This is just one more hurdle for us to have to jump over. And it takes away time that we can be spending on ensuring the best possible care based on the staffing that we do have. But I will say that states definitely are a little more keen to listening to operators as of recently. I, I sort of saw that change come about after the main part of the pandemic. And I think there, the reality was just they had to work together. The state had to work with the operators to say, what's going on in your buildings? How right. can we help? And that's what it should be. Operators should not be in a position where they're constantly feeling that this is the police coming to patrol them. We need a return to this cooperative relationship. And I know it's hopefully a turn that most operators are welcoming. Operators want to be involved. These are individuals that went to this business to help a vulnerable population. And they want to be involved. They want to ensure best care, but they need a listening ear. They need people to hear what's really going on in these buildings. You know, people sitting in government offices don't necessarily know, while they may be making decisions, they don't know what's going on in these buildings on a day-to-day -day basis. Our operators do, so listen. And I think we're getting to the point where they're listening a little more, and I think it's a very welcome change. So we'll see at the federal level if anybody's been listening on the, the staffing minimum. That's, that is true. <laughs> well, let me ask you one last federal question. Just briefly, wanted to ask, obviously, busy year for long-term care at the Supreme Court, a couple of major rulings. In one in particular, the justices have said they want to allow use of federal courts to sue public nursing homes over civil rights violations. I've heard from other legal sources that they expect this could lead to more activity, higher damage claims. How long until we see some impact from that ruling and how concerned are you? That's a really good question. How long? I don't know. In terms of concern level, I have some concern. 
I think what the most recent decision that you're referring to, and while you and I could talk for hours on it, I'll keep it very brief, or we can even do a separate session just on this decision alone. Basically, it's federalized malpractice claims against nursing homes. And I have some concerns, or public nursing homes, but I have some concerns, A, for particularly county-run nursing homes. There's a lot of, I think my last sort of research showed, I think there's at least 700, nearly 800 county-run nursing homes. It's a large percentage across the country. And so I think that's an issue number one. These are entities that have very scarce resources, and they are the true target of this decision. It means they're publicly run. Now, in terms of concern level beyond sort of just the metrics of financial resources against these already very cash-strapped organizations, is what states is this going to make the most difference? So the biggest concern I have is for those states that have malpractice laws, that they worked very hard from the legislating standpoint to cap damages and attorney fees. That was tough litigation, tough legislating to get those. And they were very welcome changes from the from the nursing home and from the healthcare field in, in general. But as this decision, in essence, has federalized now those actions, those actions that normally would have been subjected to state caps that are statutorily driven by their legislators, they're no longer able to maintain those protection. And so what we're going to see now probably is some increased litigation in those states. In, in states like Illinois, where we have statutory provision called the Nursing Home Care Act, which already provides for residents attorney fees where the resident prevails in litigation, I'm not sure we're going to see as much of a significant change in the litigation landscape. Yeah, and I think in addition to the actual individual actions in court, you have to be concerned about the effect on liability premiums and ensuring folks in states where there might be these higher pursuits of, of higher damage level cases. It's really kind of a double-edged sword there. Absolutely. Well, Adam. Thank you so much for, for touching on all those topics. So much to talk about in this arena in the last few months. So appreciate somebody bringing it all together for us. I uh, wanna thank you for your time today. Hope everyone has a great day from McKnight's. This is Kim Marcellus. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Long-Term Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in long-term care news, visit mcknights.com.